One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine, and in our new issue, which is out on newsstands this week, the economist journalist, the former Newsnight correspondent and the budding economic historian Duncan Weldon traces Britain's deep addiction to economic liberalism. In the last few years, first Jeremy Corbyn and latterly Boris Johnson proposed a far more hands-on economics, dirigist state-directed policies that were meant to tackle the skills gaps, sort out the Green New Deal, plan industries and proactively level up towns. But after writing a new book on the long history of UK PLC, 200 years of muddling through, Duncan isn't buying any of it. The many past efforts to break with liberalism, he says, have disappeared in the shadow of centuries of laissez-faire history. And he predicts that the new policies could well go the same way. So thanks for joining us, Duncan. And so if I've got your message right, the big uh, observation, the big insight is that context and country matters very much for policy. So first of all, I could ask you on your very long view. What is special about the British economy as compared with any others on that long view? Thanks, Tom. It's a very kind introduction. Yeah, I mean, I think even before asking, answering what's special about Britain, it's just worth pausing for a moment and saying, why does history matter? But I think history matters an awful lot. And too often in the social sciences, in politics, in economics, people sort of think you're, you're starting with a blank page, but you're very, very rarely starting with a blank page. How you got to somewhere matters just as much as where you are. It shapes the choices available to you. And you know, in the case of Britain, we're talking about 200 years or so, over 200 years of development as a modern industrial capitalist economy. And I think that is the unique thing about Britain. The unique thing about Britain is Britain was the first country to industrialise in a, you know, in a meaningful way. The first country to undergo an industrial revolution. The first country where productivity growth really took off in a sustained way, where we've had decade after decade of rising GDP per head. And I think that long history in Britain has shaped our institutions. You know, Britain was the first country to really get this sort of, you know, takeoff in economic growth. And in those first few decades, when Britain was the richest country in the world, the most successful economy in the world, habits became deeply ingrained. And even more than a century and a half later, you still see that ingrained habit of economic liberalism in surprising places across our economy. So just talk us through it a bit, because we, we know most of us will know from school that, you know, the spinning Jenny and uh, 
various um, naval links and whatever let Britain be the first place to industrialise, maybe the railways as, as, as well. But um, how do you get from that to these various planks of economic liberalism, like the free trade, like the, um, the, the, the fiscal balance budget you talk about, and also a sort of broader ethos of hands-off political economy? Yeah, I mean, I think with the Industrial Revolution, you know, there's this tendency to think of it as almost a list of inventions, whether it's the spinning jenny or the water mill or steam power or Stevenson's rocket or, you know, whatever, whichever one of these fantastic inventions uh, we want to focus on. But I think it's almost worth stepping back and saying, you know, the Industrial Revolution isn't about any single invention. It's almost about the invention of invention. It's about the economy moving from a sort of fairly static state to one that's growing, one where productivity and, you know, productivity, very straightforward, getting more stuff out of the same outputs, um, productivity, we're uh, getting more stuff out of the same inputs, um, you know, productivity growth takes off, we get this sort of motoring ahead of, of economic growth. And that happened in Britain at a time when Britain was really quite a, a liberal political economy. Um, you know, what the Treasury thought its job was to do was to pay down debt that had been incurred fighting wars and keep taxes low and not really get into the business of, you know, trying to manage the economy. I mean, you know, policymakers at this point didn't really think in terms of, you know, GDP, in terms of fiscal policy and monetary policy. It was all very, very hands off. And sort of the key thinkers of that time, whether it's Malthus or Ricardo or most famously Adam Smith, were sort of theorists of this more hands-off approach. You know, laissez-faire might be a, a French term, but it was very much in Britain that it was pioneered as an economic um, policy. And if you think back to those first few decades from the early to the middle of the 19th century, when Britain was very obviously richer per head than Europe and that lead appeared to be expanding, you've got this very liberal British political economy. You've got a more absolutist, more statist political economy on the continent of Europe. But Britain's model appears to be working. Um, and that becomes, you know, deeply ingrained. I mean, you think about, you've mentioned fiscal policy. If we think about, you know, the key liberal figure, sort of the mid to the late 19th century, um, Gladstone, Prime Minister four times, Chancellor before that, um, very, very important Chancellor of the Exchequer in the middle of the 19th century, very important Prime Minister in the later half of the 19th century. You know, Ernie Bevan, when he became Minister for Labour in 1940, sort of joke that I hear Gladstone was at the Treasury from 1860 to 1930. Um, and it's not really that much of an exaggeration. If anything, it's an understatement. You can still see these firm Gladstonian principles in how the Treasury thinks about the economy, how the Treasury thinks about public policy. Here we are in, what, 2021. Um, you know, the Treasury's department, where control of public spending is seen as what the Treasury does, um, saying no to departments is often an easier way to get promoted than coming up with innovative, you know, radical ideas. And, and do you think, um, I suppose, if you're out ahead in what, you know, in the, in the 2010s, people have rather boringly called the, um, the global race. But if Britain was very much ahead in, in the global race, then maybe it didn't have those kind of vested interests, um, at least in the early phase, saying, well, let's put up some barriers and not have too much trade here while we grow these industries because you haven't really got any competition to protect against. Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, Britain's final, 
you know, Britain, Britain's really you know, sort of the meaningful embrace of free trade in Britain. You get a move towards free trade throughout the 19th century, but in 1846, you know, the classic one, the Corn Laws, tariffs keeping out foreign grain were taken down, and Britain really did embrace unilateral global free trade in the 1840s. And of course, the agricultural interest was against that. Of course they were. You know, this was allowing, you know, um, grain to be imported from abroad, undercutting British farmers. Um, but it's interesting that British industrial capital, which at this point, you know, was a world leader, you know, they, they weren't arguing for tariff barriers. If you look at countries which industrialised later, then yes, often that sort of powerful industrial capital interest wants tariff barriers, it wants protection, you know, this infant industry argument so it can grow itself. You know, Britain's infant industry didn't have any foreign competitors. Um, so you know, industrial capital in Britain was very in favour of free trade um, very, very early. Now, you did have, didn't you, something of an argument in the first half of the 20th century where people, um, it seemed like the, the, the you know, the, the ruling economic class was quite divided on whether it wanted a whole lot of protection um, or not, presumably because there was now competition and some industrials thought, well, why not put up a bit of a wall and, and we'll enjoy the home market and maybe the empire market without bothering with uh, competition from Johnny Foreigner. So um, how is it that that, um, uh, you know, that, that that's a significant bend in the river for your liberalism argument? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, but if we if we start with, you know, the contentious bit, in British free trade was about agriculture. It was about letting in foreign agricultural goods. And that battle was you know, decisively won in the 1840s. So even in the 1870s, the 1880s, a time that economic historians tend to call the long depression of sort of falling agricultural prices globally, you've suddenly had big revolutions in transport technology. You get what's called the American grain invasion of all of this you know, wheat grown in the American Midwest arriving in Britain. Big win for workers who get cheaper food, but, you know, not great for British farmers. Um, big economic decline in places like East Anglia, the traditional English breadbasket. But what's interesting is the battle on free trade in food has just been won. Even as you're getting this huge decline in East Anglia, this fall in agricultural prices, there are very few people saying what we want now is tariffs on food. It is an industrial um, goods where you start to see a pushback in the 1890s, the 1900s into the Edwardian period. Because as you say, Tom, you're then, you know, Britain in the, uh, Britain in 1900 is not Britain in 1850. This is now a country with competitors. You know, Germany is industrialised, America is industrialised, France is industrialising. Um, and you get, you do get a lot of pushback. Um, and you, you, you get the first sort of talk of, you know, what, what is wrong with Britain? Uh, and many of the arguments sound very familiar. So fears about Germany powering ahead, fears about a training regime, fears that maybe British workers are too lazy, fears that we're not inventive enough, fears that our managers are too generalist and not technical enough, um, people blaming British workers. There's a wonderful Daily Mail headline around this time, which simply reads, American furniture in British stores, a further indictment of the trade unions. Um, so so the, the, you know, this argument is there, but, and although the battle over free trade versus protectionism is rejoined before the First World War. You know, the Conservative Party becomes an explicitly protectionist party. They want to put up a tariff wall, have free trade with the um, imperial trade with the rest of the empire. And you know, there's lots going on there. This is, this is a political argument about tying the empire closer together. It's a political argument trying to sort of build this coalition of 
industrial workers by protecting their jobs. Um, but in the end, it doesn't win. It, it doesn't work. You know, when, when you actually get a general election fought explicitly on the issue of free trade, what you get is a, is a liberal landslide. Um, free trade, Britain does turn away from free trade, but it takes the First World War and the 1920s to do that. You know, you know, we, you know economists tend to talk about economic shocks. I mean, there are a few things as shocking as the First World War, and that did, you know, bend, you know, knock Britain's political economy onto a slightly different path. But even then, you know, even if in free trade you get this move towards more protectionism, you know, in many other important bits of the British economy, that liberalism survives the experience of total war, a bigger state than we'd never had, than we'd ever had before, higher taxation, important aspects of that liberal settlement survive. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Okay, and so 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 um, you know we've got that twenty or thirty year period in the mid twentieth century where it's slightly obscured, maybe, but by and large, it's going the same way. But then let's turn on to what's more relevant, partly because you know we still got the same parties and so on. The the the, the history of the post war world, where like lots of us wouldn't necessarily characterise it as um, a, a, a liberal area, but fascinatingly, in your piece, you kind of um, do so. Um, Let's start with the Attlee government that people think of as the high high point of socialism in Britain. And you see um, a bit of liberal triumph going on even there. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Attlee government, that there is no doubt, you know, the British economy takes a more collectivist turn after 1945. There's no, you know, can't dispute that. But I think what you can dispute is the extent of that turn. So in very important aspects of the economy, the old liberal settlement remains. So I mean, one example would be banking and finance. Yes, you get some um, capital controls as part of sort of the global way the economy is organised into the Bretton Woods system. But even then, those capital controls are porous. And in the 1950s and the 1960s, the city starts to find ways around them. Yes, the Bank of England is nationalised, but you know the majority of the activities that are going on in the city of London, this major global financial centre, remain you know, relatively unchallenged. There's, you know, there's an aptly quote before he becomes prime minister saying, 
you know, the, the city in a socialist state would be um, as odd as a cardinal in Moscow. Um, but, you know, the, the cardinal appears to be allowed to roam around the Kremlin. Um, the, the city is left relatively under, unreformed. The training regime and education regime remains fundamentally liberal. It remains about individuals gathering skills for themselves rather than a planned system. And yes, Britain, particularly in the 1950s and the 1960s, sort of tries to experiment with a more sort of corporatist model of bringing together, you know, both sides of industry, social partners, business on one side, unions on the other, government acting as a mediator. Um, but I think the lesson of Britain from the 1950s to the 1970s is it's really hard to run a corporatist state when you don't really have strong corporatist institutions. So you look at British business bodies, you know, the, the Confederation of British Industry now, the Federation of British Industry was its... Um, predecessor, you know, British um, employer bodies have never really had much power. You know, you can talk to them um, as government, but they can't really then enforce on their members um, deals they've done. You know, the British industry has traditionally been based and was throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s and the 1940s, generally on freely competing firms which compete with each other and are focused on their own bottom lines. More interestingly, on the other side of industry, the pattern is surprisingly similar. You know, British trade unionism has a long history of supporting what's called free collective bargaining. And fundamentally, you know, free collective bargaining, groups of workers, yes, coming together, but to negotiate at a firm or even a workplace level over their own terms and competitions, is quite a liberal way of arranging your industrial relations. This isn't about big national sector or, or deals over terms, conditions, pay. This is about workers coming together to get the best they can from their individual employer. Mm, yeah, no, so just tell us with the unions, because people will be very surprised to hear them referred to as liberal, and that was one of the nice counterintuitive things in your piece. But um, like, how, how have you seen um, trade union liberalism pop up over the decades since the, since the Second World War? I mean, there's two cases we can talk about. The classic one, what I find really interesting, would be right there at the beginning of Britain's collective turn in the Attlee years. Now, you know, the Attlee government, the taxpayer in 1945, is committed to some form of economic planning. Um, and that's not that unusual at the time. You know, I mean, that your leading voices in the Conservative Party, even the Liberal Party, are in favour of a more planned economy than we had in the 20s and 30s. We've just fought another total war. Um, you know, some form of planning is... You know, priced in by that point. Quite what form that planning would take, though, was very open to two different paths. The two different sort of camps you might think of in the Attlee government. On the one side, you've got people that become known as the, the Goss planners, named after Goss plan, the Soviet Union's planning apparatus and infrastructure. And they want to go the whole hog, you know, essentially a, a wartime command economy in peacetime, complete with production quotas, targets, labour allocation, all of that. You know, there would be a grand plan to run the British economy. On the other side, you've got a more smaller liberal group of economists, sort of the disciples of Keynes, who, yes, they want more interventionism, but it's um, what, what planning to them really means is running the economy to ensure full employment, and they become known as thermostatters because of the way they plan using fiscal and monetary policy to turn the temperature up and dial it back down as needed. So, you know, when the economy is running too soft, you, you turn the heat up with a bit of expansionary fiscal policy to get it back to full employment. When it's running too hot, you turn the thermostat down. You know, this is the debate between this sort of hands-off, 
Keynesian approach to full employment and the, and the more socialist DOS planning one. Now, what I think is interesting is where the TUC, the Trade Union Congress, ends up falling in this debate is on the side of the thermostatus, because you can't have a properly planned economy without labour allocation. And labour allocation, you know, telling workers we need X thousand of you to go and work in the steel industry or whatever it may be, runs fundamentally against the traditions of British trade unionism, which is about workers bargaining over their own terms and conditions and being free to move as an outside option when they want to. So, you know, when you get this clash between, yeah, this clash between trade unions' traditions and sort of the grand plans of the intellectual left in Britain, it's the industrial interest that wins out. And it's a fundamentally smaller liberal, in many ways, interest. That is fascinating, isn't it? And then, of course, later on you had... Um, when things were coming unstuck with the so-called post-war consensus, inflation ratchets up and Harold Wilson thinks he can put together this kind of social contract and that the unions will accept, you know, various targets for pay growth. Although it has to be voluntary, it yeah. can't be compulsory. And then ultimately it doesn't stick at all, does it? No, it doesn't. I mean, it's on, and again, on, again, it's on both sides of industry. You know, you've got unions saying we want to bargain for the best we can for our workers in this plant. And fair enough, that's their job. That's why people pay their dues to the union. And you've got firms saying, actually, we, we want to increase dividends. You know, we can. We're making profit. And um, so you have both sides um, failing to stick to these sort of wages and incomes policies. Because, again, it's really hard to run this sort of policy without corporate institutions, which can not only strike a deal, but then enforce that deal down through their own hierarchies, down to individual firms. And just to be clear, if we were talking about Germany or Holland or, you know, the continental economies, that would be a different story, would it? It'd be a very different story. Um, Certainly in the 1970s and late 1960s, where you have stronger central and more concentrated labour organisations, which tend to be organised on a sector-wide basis rather than by an individual craft. Or, um, or job, or role, um, who can do a deal and enforce it down for their members. And similarly, if you look at you know, the, the role of chambers of commerce, uh, local chambers of commerce in some European countries, again, you've got employer organisations which can do a deal at a top level and they expect their members to follow through on that deal. Now, it doesn't always work, obviously, but, um, but it's much easier to run that sort of you know, social partners approach when it's not just a talking shop, there is, there is enforcement down on both sides. Fascinating. And so then we get to um, Margaret Thatcher. Now, in a way, she's got an easier job, if your story is right, because she's going, although she's ripping up bits of the post-war consensus, she's kind of reverting back to older assumptions about sound money and uh, the market will decide and uh, all of that. But there's, again, there's an interesting nuance here because... You point out the many ways in which she, as almost a Victorian liberal, does have to compromise with what's happened since. There's things she'd like to do, but she can't. Yeah, I mean, I think it works both ways, doesn't it? So that you know, if if you if you think there's this ingrained liberalism in the British economy for the last two hundred years, then 1979 is in some ways a less dramatic break. It's a, it's a return to form, and your Thatcher is going with the grain. You know, so much of what some people call British neoliberalism is just a return to classical British liberalism in one way. But on the other hand, I think, you know, the wider point, stepping back from the liberal one, the wider point is about history mattering, about the choices taken before you take power mattering, about what people call the path dependency of how you got somewhere. 
because, you know, Thatcher does not start in Britain in 1979 with a blank sheet of paper. And yes, there are huge changes in Britain's economy in the 1980s, the early 1990s. Uh, economic borders of the state retreat with the privatisation of firms that had been nationalised. Union power is broken um, in many, many ways. You know, the the labour market is liberalised. Finance becomes even freer. But, you know, the tax system remains much more progressive than it was before Britain's collectivist homeland, much more progressive tax system in the 1920s or the 30s. The state remains fundamentally an order of magnitude bigger than it was in the 1920s and the 1930s. You know, it's only in the 1980s that health spending as a share of GDP surpasses defence spending. So, you know, despite all of this, I'm setting the economy free, I'm turning back this post-war consensus, you know, state spending GDP remains around the 40% mark throughout the 1980s and the 1990s. The shift is in some ways less dramatic than it's sometimes presented as. But I guess that's the, the, the political half of the political economy is that voters got used to the NHS and quite liked it. And if you're, if you're a radical Victorian liberal like Margaret Thatcher, you, you've got to kind of lump it. And then we get to New Labour, of course, who get in and, and, and make various things more progressive, but do so by an accommodation with that Thatcherite neoliberal turn, I guess you'd have to say. You know, New Labour does not attempt to rewrite sort of the economic constitution of Britain from the one they inherited from um, Thatcher and Major. There are big changes, you know, there, I mean, the, you know, there, the, the tax system becomes a bit more progressive, much more money is funneled towards people lower down the income distribution through tax credits, through the introduction of the minimum wage, state spending on health and education rises in a material way. So, you know, this is definitely a, a left turn from what they inherited. Um, but yes, there's no real attempt to change the economic borders of the state um, you know, compared to what they inherited. And yeah, in many ways, it is a in many ways, it's it, until two thousand and eight. It's quite a, it's quite a sort of classically liberal approach to economic management. To the extent that it's about getting the drivers of long term growth in place, you know, upskilling enough people, providing opportunities, ensuring competition. A huge emphasis, very, you know, very nineteenth century emphasis on the benefits of economic openness and talking up, you know, the benefits of globalization and free trade, and believing Britain is well placed as an open liberal capitalist economy. To benefit from them. Now, obviously, after two thousand and eight, you get return of Keynes to the Treasury, and things um, things take a shift. But it's a, yeah, I, I think it's fair to say it's a, in in many ways, it is a continuation of what came before it. Um, although there are big changes in terms of tax and spending priorities. But but and and then obviously the the kind of Cameron um economic order is quite. Um, a liberal one. But let's just um, talk, before we talk about its prospects, when do we um, date this new uh, interventionism from? I mean, there was Peter Mandelson running car scrappage schemes and stuff, wasn't there, at the fag end of Labour, George Osborne, bit of Northern powerhouse stuff, and then, of course, the Brexit vote. Do you think we we need to look back to 2008 as the point when we started having second thoughts about liberalism, or do you think really it's a post-Brexit, more of Boris Johnson era thing? Well, I think, you know, if you look back, I mean, you know, sort of industrial policy slash regional policy, you know, very long history in Britain, almost a century of you know, politicians worrying at various times that certain areas are not doing as well as they would like them to be, you know, special areas in the 19. 19- 
special area schemes in the 1930s all the way up to regional development agencies under new labor. But often there's not a huge amount of money put behind these things and they sometimes feel more like tinkering than you know, step changes. Yes, after 2008, nine, you see a much more sort of muscular return to industrial policy, starting with Peter Mandelson and the car industry. Yeah, cash clunkers and all of that, um, growing into the Automotive Sector Council. And you start really from 2008 onwards to see a bit of the sort of sector machinery being reassembled. Mm. Um, but I think, and yes, George Osborne tries the Northern Powerhouse thing, but I think really you've got to go back to after the Brexit vote. I think actually probably to, so think back to Theresa May becoming Prime Minister in mm. 2016. Um, she starts with her sort of steps of Downing Street speech, and this is a very... You know, this is setting out a bit more of an interventionist um, approach. Theresa May never really follows through on that for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because the Brexit process just consumes all of the time and bandwidth in Parliament and the civil service. She's constantly sort of stuck in that Brexit logjam rather than having a proactive domestic agenda. And secondly, because Philip Hammond is as Gladstonian as they come as Chancellor right. of the Exchequer. And you've got your very Gladstonian Chancellor in place there. Treasury's not going to spend any money. Things do seem to start to change once Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister. You know, Boris Johnson has won the election in 2019 with a quite different looking uh, political coalition mm. to the one David Cameron won in 2015. This is not about gobbling up the Liberal Democrat vote. This is about taking four or dozen former Labour seats in the North, the Midlands, Wales. So, you know, Boris certainly talks a very different game to sort of the Cameron, Osborne era or the May Hammond area, you've got levelling up, big infrastructure projects, you know, no return to austerity, um, levelling up being the big one, of course, but quite how far through they will follow through with this, I think remains to be seen. I think we actually we've got a we've got a very interesting clue with this education funding package in the past week, where you know Johnson goes and hires you know, an expert on education policies says we're best in the world, catch up after COVID, money is no object, it's going to be world beating. And then when push comes to shove, the Treasury was simply not prepared to write the check um, and that plan is not being followed through on. And um, how much of levelling up will actually happen? Um, yeah, that's, that's one of the great, mis one of the big questions for the next two or three years, I think. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that changed, of course, somewhere along there is some um, the, the Labour Party with Corbyn going back to some form of socialism mm. um, and, um, uh, you know, suddenly running quite hard on nationalisation of a couple of things. And some of those, it looked like in 2017, were quite popular. And, of course, Boris Johnson, although he'd been, you know, the Chancellor Mayor who was saying, uh, uh, we've got to cut top-rate tax even further when George Osborne did so in 2012. Um, does seem very nimble, doesn't he? Seems very good at changing his tune very quickly. The Conservative Party is a tremendously nimble organisation and has been for 200 years, which is why it's been incredibly, you know, in the long sweep of history, it's one of the most electorally successful parties in any democracy for the last 200 years because it is phenomenally good at changing its shape. You know, this is the party that, you know, dying in the ditch for protection <clears throat> and then became the champion of free trade. This is a party which, you know, in 2015, when Ed Miliband wanted to freeze energy prices, that was derided as Marxism. Lo and behold, we now have an energy price freeze under a Conservative government brought in by Theresa May. Jeremy Corbyn wants to renationalise the railways in 2017 and 2019. <clears throat> That's, you know, again, ridiculous Marxism. And now we have Great British Rail, which 
although it hasn't renationalized the railways, has moved in a very renationalizey way, to use the technical term. Um, you know, this is a tremendously ideologically flexible party, um, often. Now, what is going to be interesting, I think, is going to be, because although the party as a whole has historically been ideologically very flexible, very able to move where the voters are, very able to sort of change its spots when it needs to, you know, I, I, I do wonder if sort of the one legacy of Thatcherism on the party is, you know, there are some real, there are some real ideologues in the Conservative Party now. And I think the really interesting political tension and economic policy tension of the next two or three years is going to be, you know, for how long can you run a party in the interests of your 50 newest MPs uh, in the North and the Midlands compared to your 280, 300 odd MPs um, in, in, in South in, in more traditional Conservative voting areas who may have different priorities. Finally then, um, what, what tactics would you suggest for the opposition? I'm wondering if listening to you, it sounds like there might be a very different tactic recommended here for the Liberal Democrats who are often second placed in a number of those southern seats uh, who maybe want to get back to Gladstonian uh, <laughs> principles and Labour that, that that want to take things in a continental direction and hold government feet for the fire for not doing what it's saying it will do on levelling up? Yeah, I mean, I think, the, I think the key sort of lesson for me would be that, you know, just because history matters doesn't mean the future is predetermined. You know, just because the British economy has been on a generally liberal rail doesn't mean it always has to be on a liberal rail. You've just got to be aware of your starting point. And I think the interesting thing is, if you if you are serious about wanting to move in a sort of more active state, slightly more digest approach to how you manage the economy, something more Nordic, something more North European, then I think what the opposition have to recognise is in a country like Britain, you're not going to achieve that just with a set of different fiscal and monetary policies and a different set of public spending priorities. You've got to think much more about the institutions of the economy. Think less about sort of the traditional tools of macroeconomic management, you know, fiscal policy and monetary policy, important though they are, and think more about, you know, how do we want our competition policy to look? How do we want our labour market to be run? What we what sort of what do we want corporate governance to look like, and you know, get what what does devolution look like? What powers do they do we have for devolved regional, local, and national governments? And think much more, all encompassing, encompassingly about the role of institutions in the economy as much as we think about policy. So after two hundred years of muddling through, we want to think big. Seems to be Duncan summing up message uh, there, and that is all from us. Thank you very much for joining us you can find duncan's essay condemned to be liberal which is on our website now or in the new issue of prospect um, i should also say that his book muddling through is out with little brown this summer so look out for that as well and if you've enjoyed this podcast please do leave us a rating or review goodbye stay safe and we'll see you again next week Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.